The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church 14, David Platt applies the truth of the gospel to every area of life, from spiritual disciplines to taking care of your body to relationships with family and neighbors. Even areas like working, playing, and social media are considered based on the counsel of God's Word. We'll see that all of life should be affected by the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. For the Secret Church 14 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC14. This is Secret Church 14, Episode 1. Christ in me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ with me, Christ above me, Christ beneath me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I sit, Christ when I rise, Christ when I stand, Christ in my marriage, Christ in my home, Christ in my work, Christ in my rest, Christ when I preach, Christ when I pray, Christ over self, Christ under nothing, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, Christ in every mouth that speaks of me, Christ in every mind that thinks of me, his strength in my arms, his service on my hands, his tears in my eyes, his touch on my mouth, his, his anointing on my head, his word on my heart, his humility in my all, his glory as my aim, Christ in me. So these are words, a prayer, that years ago, God put on my my heart based on a a prayer that a man named St. Patrick of England had written. St. Patrick, a missionary to Celtic barbarians in Ireland. And the prayer represents the heart of what we're gathered for tonight. So what, what does it mean for God in Christ to affect, to transform, to infuse every single detail of our lives. Or more specifically, how does the cross of Christ inform every single detail of your day from the moment you set your feet on the floor out of bed in the morning to the moment you lie down and go to sleep. That is the question we're going to ask together tonight, explore together tonight, all 60,000 of us in all 50 United States of Vermont. Thank you for coming through today. So, and... 80 different countries, so we're all together with people from Bountiful Utah to Newark, Delaware to Fairbanks, Alaska to Honolulu, Hawaii. Aloha. In addition to brothers and sisters from Haiti to Scotland, from Malaysia to Mozambique. What a joy just to be a part of a gathering like this tonight. Now, let me invite you to pull out uh, the study guide that hopefully you have wherever you are Whether you're in a church gathering, you're in a home somewhere. For those of you who are new to Secret Church, you are rookies. We welcome you. 
I hope you have chosen wisely and the person you are sitting next to right now because you're going to need that person if they are a frequent dozer or if they are not good listeners, note takers, then you are going to be at a significant disadvantage in your seat. So look around the room, this room, your house and church, wherever. It's not, it's not too late. You might want to make a switch. Nobody be offended. Now, the purpose of this study guide is, is multifaceted, and one of those purposes is, is to enable us to cover as much material as possible in one sitting. So, when I've gathered together with persecuted brothers and sisters in different places in the world, at the risk of their lives, they make the most of that time. So, our goal tonight is to make the most of our time, to drink from the fire hydrant of God's Word. We can digest later, but we're going to drink tonight. Maybe even choke a little bit. But my, my hope is that we're going to equip one another with God's Word in the world. And that's where I want to remind you, whether it's your first secret church or you've been to every single secret church, that the goal tonight is not entertainment. The goal is equipping. And that's, that's key. The goal is not just for 60,000 people to have a good Bible study tonight. If that's our goal, then we missed the whole point from the start. The goal tonight is for 60,000 people to consider together how the cross of Christ affects everything we do, and then to leave the places where we're gathered all around the world, equipped with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to apply the cross to every single detail of our lives, and to proclaim the cross to every single people group on the planet. So that's the point. So this is the question before us. How do I, how do you, how do, how do we obey the radical commands of Christ? So Jesus has said to every single one of his disciples, Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You look at the end of that passage, it says, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And you got Matthew 28. How do I obey the command of Christ to go and make disciples of all nations? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. How do I live as a witness to the ends of the earth? Revelation 12, 11. How do I not love my life even unto death? How do I do these things? So here's the question. How do I obey the radical commands of Christ in the normal routine of everyday life. So what is Luke 9, Luke 14, Matthew 28, Acts 1, Revelation? What, what, what do those texts look like in the life of a stay-at-home mom or a college student or an accountant or a senior adult? So ever since I, I wrote a book called Radical, people have asked me, what about verses like 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 that says we just aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs? And aren't we just supposed to provide for our families? 1 Timothy 5, 8, Titus 2, we're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Radical's not on that list. So how do we, in a sense, reconcile the radical words of Christ with the normal responsibilities of everyday life? So here's what we're going to do, the plan ahead of us. So this is basically an outline of our time in the Word tonight. We're going to start with a gospel foundation for understanding everyday life. So we're going to lay a foundation upon which everything else is built. We're going to think about the overall purpose of our everyday lives. Then we're going to think about the primary problem in our everyday lives. Then we're going to pause and we're going to contemplate on this Good Friday how the death of Christ changed everything in history 2,000 years ago. And then we're going to contemplate how the death of Christ changes everything in our lives today. 
So that's foundation. Then we'll move on to a gospel framework for approaching everyday life. So an overall approach to everyday life based on the two primary commandments that Christ has given us. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So these are the guiding commands Christ has given us for our everyday lives. So we're going to think about how do you live every day to love God with all your heart and soul. We're going to dive into a call to daily prayer and questions about daily prayer. Then we're going to think about living every day to love God with all your mind and strength. We're going to think about how to fill your mind daily with truth from God's Word, how to sharpen your mind daily with truth in God's world, how to take care of your body daily as a temple of God's Spirit. We're going to think about how do you honor God in what you wear every day? How do you honor God in what you eat every day? How do you honor God in how you exercise every day? And then how do you keep control of your body daily in accordance with God's will? We're going to talk about a biblical expression of physical denial, fasting regularly, and then a biblical expression of physical discipline, fleeing sexual immorality. And then that will lead us to think about living every day to love your neighbor as yourself. Or we'll see what Scripture says about a husband's daily approach to his wife, a wife's daily approach to her husband, a parent's daily approach to children, a single's daily approach to others. Then we'll think about a Christian's daily approach to other Christians and a Christian's daily approach to non-Christians. And then from there, with that foundation framework set, which will take much of the night, then I want us to finish by thinking through how the cross of Christ literally affects what happens when our feet hit the floor in the morning till we lay back down at night. So we'll think about the cross and waking up in the morning, the cross and working all day long, the cross and playing after work. And then we're going to think about the cross and listening, watching, reading, texting, receiving, sending, posting, tweeting, Instagramming, blogging, messaging, tumbling, liking, poking, following, unfollowing, emailing, snapping, chatting, vining, networking, and all sorts of othering. I don't even know what half those words mean, but we're going to talk about them tonight. So all of that will then lead us to what happens when we close our eyes at night, the cross and resting. So we're basically going to finish the evening, Lord willing, talking about a theology of sleep. And by then you will want it (laughs) if you have not already inadvertently experienced it. So sound good? All right, here we go. Got a lot of ground to cover. Open mouth, insert fire hose. A gospel foundation for understanding everyday life. So one of, my, one of my favorite quotes from C.J. Mahaney, the gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building where all the classes take place. Rightly approached, all the top sh- topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. Nothing in the Christian life can be rightly understood apart from God's grace through Jesus' death. They, and indeed all topics, should be studied through the lens of the gospel. So... All right, what, what does that mean? I thought, I thought the gospel is just what, what saves me, and then I kind of move on in the Christian life. No, the gospel, which centers around the cross of Christ, is everything. Think about the purpose of our everyday lives from the very beginning of Scripture. A couple lines into that passage from Genesis 1, verse 27 says, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And I have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So from the start of Scripture, we see a twofold purpose here for human life, for your life, for my life. One, we have been created to enjoy God's grace in a relationship with Him. So God creates man and woman in His image with the unique capacity to relate to Him, to walk with Him. You have been created with the unique capacity, ability to know God. And the first thing God did after he created men and women is he, he blessed them. This is the pure, unadulterated goodness of God being poured out upon his prized creation. And then he says, 
And so he blessed them. He said, now be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, fill all creation with my image, with my blessing, with my goodness. So we have been created to enjoy God's grace in our relationship with him. And we've been created, so this is the second part of the purpose, twofold here. We've been created to exalt God's glory to the ends of the earth. Enjoy God's grace in relation with him. Exalt God's glory to the ends of the earth. Those, these initial verses in the Bible set the stage for an entire book that is permeated by this purpose. You look at other passages in Genesis. Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whom who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I'm going to bless you, and through you, the, my blessing is going to be known among all the families of the earth. Same thing to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis chapter 6. I'll multiply, 26, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring, in my blessing you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Same thing to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. You get to Exodus chapter 14, and God's about to deliver his people from the Egyptians who are about to overtake them as they stand at the Red Sea. And listen to what he says. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So notice how God blesses his people. He splits the sea in half. Why? So the Egyptians will know that he is God. Extravagant grace for extravagant glory. This is, the, this is the motivation, per se, that drives God throughout all history. Look at 1 Samuel 12, 22. The Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. 2 Samuel 7, 23. Who's like your people, O Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name. Look at 2 Kings 19.34. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. Look at Psalm 23, this beloved psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We're created to enjoy God's grace. In him, we have everything we want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Why does God do all of this? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Listen to Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Did you catch that? That's a command in the word of God. Christian, you are commanded to delight yourself in God, to be happy in God. That's a good command. For God is glorified in a people who delight in him. Keep going. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Enjoy his grace, right? For what purpose? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Extend his glory. It continues throughout the Psalms. Go down to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. He exalts himself by showing us mercy. Isaiah 43, some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Fear not, I've redeemed you, God says to his people. I've called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned because I'm the Lord your God and you are precious and honored in my sight and I love you. Then you get down to the very end and he says in verse seven, I've created you for my glory, whom I formed and I made. God shows such grace to us. You're precious, honored in my sight and I love you for my glory. God forgives our sins. Why? Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own name's sake. 
For Isaiah 48, verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do this. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now jump down to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 and 23, when God says to his people, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm doing these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations where you've gone. I'll show the holiness of my great name, the name you've profaned among the nations, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Habakkuk 2.14, all history headed to the day when, headed for the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Which is why, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus' ministry ends with a commission for Christians to go and make disciples among all the nations, to spread the image of Christ among all nations. This is why Jesus went to the cross, John chapter 12. This is why we pray, John 14. This is why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, John 16, Acts chapter 1. So the people who enjoy his grace will extend his glory as witnesses to the ends of the earth. Romans 11:36. to him be glory forever and ever. Look down at 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, so people of God who know the grace of God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of this is headed. Jump down to Revelation 7. This is where all eternity is going. This is the last passage in that section there. All of eternity is headed toward the day when a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, They will cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They've been saved by His grace. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Saved by His grace, enjoying His grace, they exalt Him for His glory. This is where all of eternity is headed. So, Jonathan Edwards rightly said, the great end of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed by one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensive, comprehensively called the glory of God. He continues, God glorifies Himself toward the creatures in two ways. By appearing to their understanding and in communicating himself to their hearts, and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified, not only, follow this, by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that, that should be see right there, I think it's we, not we it. When those that see it, delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. Richard Baxter, Puritan pastor of old, said God's glorifying himself and the saving of his people are not two decrees with God, but one decree to glorify his mercy and their salvation. Though we may say that one is the end of the other. So I think they should be with us together indeed. He continues, May the living God, who is the portion and rest of the saints, make these our carnal minds so spiritual and our earthly hearts so heavenly that loving him and delighting in him, listen to this, may be the work of our lives. Yes, yes, yes. This is our work. So this is our everyday work, delighting in our God. And there is no greater delight than this. It's why C.S. Lewis said the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. 
We're told to deny ourselves, to take up our cross in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from caught in the Stoics and there's no part of the Christian faith. So hear what, hear what he's saying there. Lewis is saying it's not bad to desire good, to desire enjoyment, to desire satisfaction, because if you really desire good, if you really desire enjoyment, if you really desire satisfaction, then that desire will ultimately lead you to God, who is infinitely good, who is infinitely enjoyable, and infinitely satisfying. So he says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Oh, don't be pleased with what this world says satisfies you when you've been created to enjoy God for the glory of God. That's why John Piper said the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is mammoth truth. This is the purpose of your life. So you, right where you're sitting, here, wherever you are in the world, You have been created to enjoy God and to exalt God. And these go together. The more you enjoy God, the more you exalt God. The more you exalt God, the more you enjoy God. Enjoyment by exaltation. This is the reason why you have breath right now. The purpose of our lives. But... Problem in our everyday lives is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is glorious, He's sovereign over all. A word that describes how God created all things, He knows all things, He sustains all things, and He owns all things. So sovereignty means authority. God's the author of all things, which means He has authority over all things. He has authority to govern the world. And God has authority to govern every one of our lives. He has all the rights. All the rights belong to God. He's sovereign over all. And God is holy above all. He's holy above all. He's unique, set apart, completely pure, completely true, completely other. There's none holy like the Lord, 1 Samuel 2.2. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6.3. He's holy above all. He's righteous in all his ways, which means he's right in all that he does. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He's righteous in all his ways, and he is just in all his wrath. Because God is holy and righteous, he cannot stand sin. He is intolerant of sin. Holiness can't coexist with sin. God can't tolerate it. And God is indignant toward sinners, which may sound like strong language to some, but listen to the language of Scripture. Psalm 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, O God. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And this is not an isolated verse in the Bible. When you look at Exodus 32 here, Numbers 16, they describe the white-hot wrath of God due sinners. Look down at Deuteronomy chapter 9, describes how the Lord was so angry in his wrath toward his people that he was ready to destroy them. 
Psalm 78 down there describes his wrath toward Pharaoh and the Egyptians, saying he let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. This is God. And it's not just the Old Testament either. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira struck down dead for their deception in the church. That'll hurt your attendance the next Sunday when people start dying in the offering. I, but I fear that we have no sense of this in the church today. There is far too much shallowness and levity among us. You just, just look at our worship. Where, where are the scenes of biblical worship? They're, just, they're so radically different from contemporary worship. Where, where's Nehemiah 8 with the people down, bowing down on their faces worshiping God. Where's Ezra who cried out in worship, oh my God, I'm too ashamed. I'm too ashamed and disgraced to even lift my face to you. Ezra 10, people weeping together before the Lord. We don't, we don't do these things today. We, we clap our hands and we dance around and it never, it never occurs to us that God might send us away. Think about the seriousness of God's holiness, his righteousness and his wrath and scripture and you'll see why they approach God with this kind of humility. Thankfully, the glory of God does not end with his wrath, for not only is he just in all his wrath, but God is loving toward all his creation. 1 John 4.16 makes clear God doesn't just demonstrate love, God defines love. Now, if you're feeling a little bit of tension between those last two characteristics, his wrath and his love, then just hang on for a few minutes. Now, while God is glorious, we are sinful, meaning we've denounced his sovereignty. We've rebelled against the authority of God. This is the picture of sin, first sin in Genesis 3. Even though God said not to eat from the tree, we're going to do it anyway. He's Lord over us. He's not Lord over us. We can do what we want. And this is the God who beckons storm clouds in creation, and they come. This God who says to the mountains, you go here, and they go there, and the stars, you go there, and they go there. This is God who speaks to all creation, and all creation responds in obedience to him until you get to you and me, and we have the audacity to look at God in the face and say, no. No, you don't have authority over our lives. And this verse from Leviticus 16, sin is described as a transgression, literally a rebellion against authority. Sin is defiance against the author of our lives. We've denounced his sovereignty. We've dishonored his holiness. Ezekiel 36, we read earlier. We've despised his righteousness. None of us are righteous, Romans 3 says. And we've disregarded his wrath, virtually pretending it's not even there or violently objecting that it's there. Ultimately, we have denied his love. When you, when you ask someone in the church today what sin is, they'll say, well, it's messing up or doing something wrong or making a bad decision. But ladies and gentlemen, sin is far worse than that. The problem in our lives is that we've denounced the sovereign God. We've dishonored his holiness, despised his righteousness. Though we deserve his wrath, we have totally disregarded it and we have denied his love which all leads to the ultimate problem in all the universe. How can a just, holy God save rebellious sinners who are due his wrath? We've got we to feel the weight of this. Look at this verse from Proverbs, Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So now th think about that. God is a just judge who says to the wicked, you're wicked. And he says to the righteous, you're righteous. Consequently, he detests those who say to the wicked, you are righteous, or to the evil, you're good. And he detests those who say to the good, you're evil, or to the innocent, you're guilty. That is an abomination to God. 
because God is a good judge. He's a just judge. Like any good judge, he says to the guilty, you're guilty. He says to the innocent, you're innocent. He says to the good, you're good. He says to the evil, you're evil. So follow this. God himself says that if you justify the guilty, if you say the guilty are innocent, then you're an abomination to the Lord. Well, that's not, that's not good for us. Because it begs the question, well, then how can God justify the guilty? How can God say, though, say to those who are guilty, you are innocent? Because as soon as he does, he's an abomination to himself. How can God look at those who are guilty and say innocent and still be just? This is the ultimate question of the Bible and the ultimate problem for every person in this gathering tonight. Now, it's not what we often look at as our ultimate problem. Most people in our culture are not worried about how God can be just and kind to sinners at the same time. Not many people are losing sleep at night because God is being kind to sinners. On the contrary, we're pointing the finger at God, saying, how can you punish sinners? How can you let people go to hell? But the question of the Bible is just the opposite. God, how can you be just and let rebels into heaven? How can God, so feel the tension here, express his holiness without consuming us in our sin? How can God express his love without condoning us in our sin? How can God judge sin and justify the sinner at the same time? How can God satisfy his character and save our souls at the same time? How can this happen? You see the tension there in Hosea 11. A tension between what the Lord ought to do because of his righteousness and what he cannot do because of his love. There's a conflict here of sorts between compassion and wrath, both of which are attributes of a good and holy God. And so this tension then leads us to how the death of Christ changed everything in history on Good Friday 2,000 years ago when God satisfied his character by sacrificing his son in the place of sinners. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.